Father, thank you for being a God who wants to communicate with us. Thank you so much for the Bible. We pray that we would grasp a hold a little bit more fully on your character of love and that that would lead us to appreciate you more deeply and trust you more completely. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. We were out backpacking in the mountains, and we were out with a, a group called Teen Bible Academy. Now, on Teen Bible Academy, it, it merged together a lot of different people. There were some people who had been backpacking many times before and who were used to the outdoors. And then there were some others who had never been backpacking before, who had never been in the outdoors. And, and one of these, actually, this year was one of our staff members. He was from, grew up in Los Angeles. I don't think he'd ever been backpacking before. Maybe this was, uh, this might have been his second time backpacking. I'm not sure. But... I remember the first night, something happened to him. And I'm going to tell it to you, first of all, through his eyes. During the night, he woke up and he, he had to go to the restroom. And in the middle of the night, in the middle of the woods, he, he was a little terrified by this prospect of going out, wandering in the woods to find a restroom. And so, well, there's no restroom, find a tree. So he decided that he was going to shine his flashlight around to see what was out there. And as he shined his flashlight around, suddenly he saw it. There was... These two dots, they were glowing. These eyes, he said they were glowing right about the level of the ground. And then all of a sudden, these eyes, they raised up. And he said he immediately dropped his flashlight. He fell on the guy next to him. He was terrified by this massive beast. In the morning, he could not wait to tell us about this this bear who had been out in the woods in the dark and was about to devour him, except for that he had screamed and he'd fallen on one of the other, uh, one of the students actually. And we said, a bear? Are you serious? Do you realize that, that the most likely thing that you saw was a deer eating grass who, when you shined your flashlight on him, was wondering what you're doing and looked at you and then raised his head up in the air. He's like, no, no, no. I'm sure that it was a massive bear. You know, perception can be really confusing. When, when things are dark, we don't always recognize what the world is is really doing around us. We don't recognize what's going on. I mean, just look at some of the the confusion that we've had this week. I mean, was the sun shining this week or was it not? I saw an orange glow off in the distance, but it didn't really look like the beautiful sunshine that we see today. Darkness veils our eyes from being able to see truth. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. We've looked at this now. This is our third week diving into the Revelation chapter 12 where we see this amazing battle that has taken place that, that, that is behind the veil of all that's gone on in human history. And that is the battle between Christ and Satan. Satan who, who accused God himself of being self-centered and And Jesus, who has revealed that God's law of self-sacrificing love is the law of life for the universe. That this is how life operates. That that our self-sacrificing love for other people, that, that that's just the way God operates. And he's inviting us all to have that law written in our hearts. We talked about that last week. But in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to look again at the last verses of the chapter. Starting in verse 13, it says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, dragon representing Satan. He persecuted the woman, representing the church, we've learned, who gave birth to the male child. There's this horrendous picture, right, of a dragon chasing after a woman. And then look at verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle. 
that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And last week we looked at how this is reminiscent of what took place with the children of Israel, how they were taken on eagles' wings, God said, from being captives in Egypt, and they're rescued out of that and brought to the wilderness for God to bring them and give them the ten promises of what he wanted to do in his loving covenant with them that's similar to a marriage. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This, this amazing prophecy gives us this swath of history that takes place from, from the time that Jesus goes to the cross. And earlier in Revelation chapter 12, we see clearly that, that Jesus on the cross forever accomplished the casting down of the accuser of our brethren, who is Satan. That, that his lie that God is selfish, that he's holding back something good from us, that he doesn't want what's best for our lives, that, that, that God is arbitrary and he's just, enforcing laws to make our lives difficult. That on the cross, Jesus as God in human flesh revealed that that's not the truth. As he continued to lay down his life and say, I'd rather that they exist, that they have a happy life. I will lay down my life for them, even though they're the ones nailing me to this cross. And he revealed that God's love is actually self-sacrificing, and that that is the principle that is what the universe is based on, that that is what life is based on. Well, you see here that it says the dragon, when he finds that he's cast down to the earth, that, that no longer is there any, any possibility that heaven's going to listen to him any longer. The angels are like, hey, you, you wanted Jesus to be put to death on that cross. There's no way we're listening to you any longer. When he found that he'd been cast down to the earth, he begins especially to focus on persecuting the church. In the first few centuries of Christian history, you see how these, these emperors come up who are absolutely terrible in what they're doing. They, they light the city by, by burning Christians. And it's this terrible picture. And yet, the blood of martyrs is seed. And, and more people want to join them as they, they see this happening. The odd thing is they realize these people have peace. They have joy. They have something to live for. And they begin to join them. And so, the tactics begin to, ch- to change. You find the emperor Constantine in the fourth century... He goes and, and, and he has this vision. He's trying to, to, to conquer the others who are vying for the emperor, empire. And he has his, his army baptized in the Rhine River and, and emblazons the cross on them and says, in this sign we conquer. And now you have people holding a cross and killing people in the name of Jesus. And, and it says that the, the the church then goes into the wilderness in hiding. But it uses this time period. Did you notice the time period there? 1260 days. And this time period is used seven different times in prophecy. It's used in, in Daniel and it's used in Revelation. Seven different times. And it's, it comes in different formats. But this time period we begin to see take place. And we'll see the end of the time period next week. It's very clear from the Bible the end of the time period. But, but when does this time period take place where the church began to be forced, the true church began to be forced to go into the wilderness? Well, you find in the 5th century, I'm sorry, the 6th century, around 533 AD, that things were 
had kind of spiraled out of control. The Western Roman Empire had fallen in 476. And, and you have these barbarian tribes who are invading the Roman Empire and they just overwhelm it. These, you know, they're, they're, there's 10 or so different tribes who are, who are all overwhelming this massive empire of Rome. And they don't believe the way that the Romans had come to believe in confessing Christianity. And so they're a real problem. And specifically, there was a tribe, the Ostrogoths, who kept coming and they actually took over Rome. They, they, they lived in Rome. And the emperor Justinian begins to want to deal with this problem because the Ostrogoths had been converted by Arian uh, missionaries. You know what, who Arians are? Do you know what Arians believe? They believe that that Christ, at some point in the past, came forth from the Father, that that he's not a co-eternal person of the Godhead. They don't believe in the Trinity. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. (laughs) That was a trick question. It doesn't make sense at all. But but that's what they believed. They they believed that Jesus, at some point in the past, came forth from the Father. And so, here you have, these barbarians who are ruling in Rome who don't believe that Jesus is fully God, or at least eternal. And so Justinian sends his, his uh, general Belisarius to Rome and then begins to, to try to take Rome back over. And they, it goes back and forth. The, at some points, the Ostrogoths would have Rome. At some point, uh, the, the, the army would be able to take it over again, Belisarius and his army. But then you find that eventually they're able to cast them out of the city in about 538 A.D. But in 533, Justinian had, had begun to, to, to switch his focus just from military strength, from, from politics. He began to think about theology. And he began to, to write codes of, into his laws that, that were now religious laws that that would fix this problem because obviously what what needed to take place was to restrict people's religious freedom because here you have the empire not knowing which direction to go and, and we need to have a uniform system of religion sounds good on the outset when you have barbarian ostrogoths who don't believe in jesus as god i mean who wants to give them religious freedom But when we pick and choose who we give religious freedom to, we end up becoming an oppressive power as we find takes place. As as they begin to enact these things, and and, uh, the the historian Philip Schaeff said that in 538 is when you find that the, the Roman church state actually comes into authority, supreme power in Christendom. And basically you have the, the Roman emperor's power is now given over to a, the bishop of Rome, who is now the, the church's authority there in Rome. And suddenly, this becomes the, the ruling authority that's both a political power and a religious power there in Rome. Now, odd things begin to happen because they, they have combined religion or Christianity with paganism. Now, what was paganism's basic philosophy? Pagan philosophy is basically this. The gods are really angry. Every, every story that you read about the gods, the gods are angry, they're capricious, they're selfish, they're these horrible beings, and they hate human beings. But if we can do enough things, if we can 
offer the right sacrifices. Sometimes it even turned into child sacrifice. If we can, if we can just appease the gods somehow, if we can just make them happy with us, then we'll be good. And so you find things being introduced into Christianity. You have, you have all of these penances introduced. You have this vast... I'll read actually from, from a, uh, the book, The Great Controversy, to give you a little picture of some of the things that were brought in. Page 55, it says, The gospel was lost, lost sight of, but the forms of religion were multiplied, and the people were burdened with religious exactions. They were taught not only to look to the Pope as their mediator, but to trust to works of their own to atone for sin. Long pilgrimages, acts of penance, the worship of relics, the erection of churches, shrines, and altars, the payment of large sums to the church, these and many similar acts were enjoined to appease the wrath of God or to secure his favor. As if God were like men, to be angered at trifles or pacified by gifts or acts of penance. Isn't it fascinating? When we lose sight of the gospel, we begin to multiply our forms in religion. Have you ever experienced that before? When you lose sight of what Jesus has done for you, when you lose sight of how he feels about you, the love that he has for you, you begin to make longer and longer lists in order to be able to please God. That's what you find the Pharisees doing. Ah, we've, we've kept being sent into to, to captivity because because we've been unfaithful. And so pretty soon they're making these long lists to guard the Sabbath. And the Sabbath became this terrible thing that, that Jesus is working hard to, to throw off this yoke of bondage that they have made out of the Sabbath. And you find this taking place in what became the Dark Ages. Have you ever heard the Middle Ages called the Dark Ages before? It was dark because in Europe, suddenly you have no longer is there progress in in any realm, really, you, you find that, that things are, are degrading because they began to put the Bible down. They began to, to neglect the Bible. They began to say, look, just listen to the rules and laws that we're telling you about religion because you can't interpret things. They didn't give people the freedom to go to the Bible for themselves. But here's the awesome truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Bible has truth in it that, that we can invite people to just come to the Bible, to read it for themselves, and to know that through the power of the Holy Spirit, they're going to come in contact with Jesus Christ. That's the reality of the Bible. And, and we find this actually in Revelation just the chapter before, because here you have this picture of a dragon that's, that's pursuing this woman in the wilderness, and we'll get back to that in a second. But in Revelation chapter 11, it says this in verse 3. So this is one of the other times that this uh, period of 1,260 days is mentioned. It says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Hmm. Two witnesses. Well, what do these two witnesses represent? Let's keep reading. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. So, okay, if we put these things together, it gets really exciting here. Because what it's saying is, if you look in the Bible, where olive oil comes from an olive tree, and you have lampstands here. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet 
and a light to my path. The, the Bible is what gives light. No wonder it was called the Dark Ages when the Bible began to be restricted from people's lives. So you have this, this picture of the Bible, but, but what about these two witnesses? And what, what does that have to do with the Bible? Well, think about what Jesus said. In John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus talking to the, to the Jews, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. But these are they which testify of me. To testify comes from the same word as witness. Marturas. Martureo is, is the verb for, for to testify. So, so these are they which testify of me. What scriptures was he talking about? Was he talking about what Paul wrote? No, Paul came along later, right? He's not talking about the New Testament scriptures. He's, what scriptures testify of Jesus according to Jesus? He's talking about the Old Testament. But then in Matthew chapter 28, he talks to his disciples and he says, look, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness... Right? So this, and he says that again in Matthew chapter, chapter 24, that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness, and then the end will come. So, so you have these, these witnesses that I believe represent the Old Testament, the New Testament, it represents the Bible. Now, now what's strange about these witnesses? There's a number of strange things, but what do we notice in this verse? How, how are they dressed? They're clothed in sackcloth. You see, this represents a time period, which if you go back, Isaac Newton was actually was one of the first ones to, to notice that in Bible prophecy, frequently, like in Numbers 14.34, uh, you find that a day represents a year in Bible prophecy. When you come to Bible prophecy and you read a time period and it talks about days, oftentimes that time prophecy is a day for a year. And here you find that there's 1,260 years prophesied, a time period where you have the Bible clothed in sackcloth. What does that mean? Sackcloth is what they would wear when you have really difficult times going on, when you're mourning. And sackcloth is also what you would wear uh, when you wanted to repent. So you have this, this picture of a world that needs repentance, a picture of a world that's going through all types of, of strife. And you have a picture of people who continue to have that light with them, but it's, it's a small group of people. It's, it's not what, what, when you read about Christian history, when you read about the church in general, what people are generally talking about is what took place in Rome and how this, this, this church became a persecuting power that, that pretty soon was restricting people's liberty to worship Jesus and to read the Bible for themselves. And they said, no, 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 no. You don't want to go and read the Bible for yourself because you may not be able to understand what you read there. Let us tell you what it means. I'm here to tell you, if anybody, if you don't remember anything else today, just remember that you can go to the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to you. And this is enough. The Bible is a light to your path. The Bible is what you need to sustain your life. The Bible is how you're going to be able to see your way through this dark world. So there was a guy by the name of Vigilantius. He, as a boy, grew up in Gaul, which was made up of a number of different, different countries that we now know of in Europe, uh, one of those being the northern part of Italy. And his, his father was an innkeeper. 
And as people would come by there on the road, news began to travel about the type of person that he was. And, and a local landlord got news of, of this young boy and his talents and his gifts. And he saw the promise in him and he began to invest in him. And pretty soon he was investing in him to send him off to the, to the, the, the schools, the Christian schools. This was in the 5th century. And as he sends him off to these schools, before long he's, he's excelling so much that, that he gets to be sent off to Palestine where you have Jerome of Bethlehem. And as he's sent off to Palestine, he begins to study under Jerome. He keeps excelling more and more, but there's a problem. He begins to look at what Jerome is teaching, who's one of these famous uh, Christian uh, fathers. And as he begins to look at what he's teaching, he's like, wait a second. I believe we can come straight to Jesus. Isn't that what the Bible tells us? That we can pray in the name of Jesus. It, Jerome was teaching about the need to, to pray through saints. And this was one thing that was especially uh, angersome, in my understanding, to Valentius. And, and he was talking about all of these different ways that we could basically gain the favor of God. You know, just to pause for a second, it's easy for me to look back at that time and think, man, what, what in the world were they thinking? Why did they come up with all those things? I mean, obviously, some of those practices that they were doing were just a waste of their time. But I have to look in my own life and say, why do I pray? Why do I read my Bible? Why do I go to church? Why am I sitting here today? Is it because I think that, that maybe God will like me more? Because of these things, maybe I can gain his favor. Maybe I need to convince him somehow to love me. If so, then I'm letting that same spirit creep into me. I'm letting the dragon begin to to piecemeal away at my relationship with God. Well, Valentius began to actually go and preach on his way back from Bethlehem, he's, he's preaching on the way. He's carrying a letter for Jerome, but he's preaching about how Jerome basically is a heretic, is what he's saying. And he says, later on, Jerome writes a letter about him and says, that monster Vigilantius. And he, he begins to call him a heretic. And pretty soon, Vigilantius is ostracized. And he begins to, to just preach from the Bible and to say, anybody that wants, you follow me. And little by little, they become more and more persecuted, and they begin to be pushed out of the cities. They begin to be pushed up into the the Alps, into the mountains. And you begin to see how the church had to go into the wilderness. The church had to be clothed in sackcloth. The church had to be in hiding. Those who really wanted Jesus in all of his purity couldn't just continue to worship in the normal way. You read about this not just with the Waldensians, who Vigilantius, eventually that group of people became known as the Waldensians. But you read about this with uh, St. Patrick and Columba, those in in Scotland on the island of Iona. They they formed this mission school where they studied the Bible and their focus was the Bible. and, And they just encouraged people to get to know Jesus as revealed in the Bible. And then they would send them out as missionaries from there. And you read about this with people even down in Central Africa who, who had never left behind all that they had, had learned 
from the apostles. He maybe is the Ethiopian eunuch who was traveling back and Philip talked to him. Not sure exactly. But you find these pockets of Christianity that, that later on, when the church came in contact with them, the popular major church, when they came in contact with them, they're like, how did you have these beliefs? Where did these beliefs come from? They're like, well, it's from the Bible. So back to the Waldensians. I love what's happening with our school. I love how we have teachers who are passionate about our children learning from the Bible. Because this is, this is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It is life for us. It is what testifies of Jesus. And it was fascinating because, okay, kids, how many of you have at least one Bible verse memorized from your time at the school? Anybody have a Bible verse memorized or, or just from any time? have memorized how many of you here have a bible verse memorized a couple of you have a bible verse memorized right so the waldensians they were really passionate about the bible and about scripture so much so that they began to train their kids and they would have them memorize the bible because it wasn't as easy to just carry around a bible like we have today because that wasn't all right and they would copy the scriptures and they'd memorize the scriptures so much so that they would often a child would have the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John, and some of the epistles memorized. Have any of you ever memorized a book of the Bible before? I can't even raise my hand for that. But I really would like to. I'd like to meet somebody that has, if if you've memorized a book of the Bible, there's something powerful about getting the Word of God in us. And then as, as they got older, as they were trained in the Bible, they didn't just stay in, in their own schools where they recognized that they didn't have enough training for them. They wanted them to go to the universities. But they wanted them to go to the universities not just to get a higher education, but to go there and begin to disseminate light, to begin to share these Bible truths that they had learned. And they would take them and they'd train them and they'd, they would go to the universities and they would sew into their clothing parts of the scripture that they had had copied and they they had those those parts of the scripture in their clothing and and they would mingle among the other students and after they got to know them well enough they'd find those who were interested and they'd begin to share and before long the leaders in the school would be so frustrated because here you have an entire school that's beginning to embrace the gospel the gospel the good news about who jesus is and what he's done for us you see The only way to survive in the wilderness, the only way to make it through troublesome times, and we are living in troublesome times. If you hadn't noticed, 2020 is a pretty troublesome year, isn't it? In fact, I just texted somebody uh, this week and I said, how's it going? And they said, well, besides living in 2020, this hellish year, everything's great. (laughs) I had another friend who posted on Facebook, you know, the next thing that's going to happen is, is the Bermuda Triangle is going to begin just roaming around the planet and we're going to have planes disappearing everywhere. And, and just, it, you can make the most random predictions about what's going to happen the rest of this year and probably people would believe you at this point and about what's going to happen in 2021 because the world seems to be spiraling out of control. How do you handle it when everything around you is shaking? What we need is a firm foundation. And that firm foundation is Jesus as revealed in the Bible. I know that not just from the Waldensians, but I know that from another individual who went into the wilderness, I believe, to connect with God. But look look with me at 
Mark chapter 1. And in Mark chapter 1, we, we see a picture of something very similar to what happens to the church in Revelation chapter 12. Mark chapter 1 and verse 12 says this, After the baptism of Jesus, it says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. He, he's there in the wilderness, and the wilderness is known as the place where the wild beasts are. Just like the, this wild dragon chasing the woman there in the wilderness. There's wild beasts there, but even more dangerous, there's Satan himself there tempting Jesus. And, and what was the temptation that, that Satan brought to Jesus? This might help us to, again, unpack this great controversy a little bit more. Again, to, to understand a little bit more clearly, what is it in our lives that will lead the enemy, or what will he try to do to deceive us? So go back to Matthew's version of it, because Mark Mark's quick with what he, she shares and doesn't go into detail. But go to, back to Matthew chapter 3 and verse 17. After Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3 tells us that Jesus comes up out of the water, the dove descends on him, the Holy Spirit is filling Jesus. And then look at what happens in verse 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, this is the opposite of paganism. This is a God saying to Jesus, God in human flesh, saying, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I I love you and I'll never stop loving you. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Then verse 4, or chapter 1 of verse, chapter 4 says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said. Now notice when he's coming to him. He comes to him when he's really hungry. How do you feel when you've fasted for a couple of days? Anybody ever done that before? You feel really energetic, like you could run a marathon after fasting for a couple days. You feel weak. You feel emaciated. I cannot imagine what it's like to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Please do not do that. Right? Don't go more than a day or two, honestly, or maybe three. So he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's hungry. He's weak. He is encumbered with human flesh, although he's God. Mystery of mysteries. But then it goes on to, what, what is the temptation in that moment that is brought to Jesus? Notice what Satan does. He says, if you are the Son of God. Do you see where the temptation lies in this? Do you see the, what the root is? The, the first two temptations when he comes to Jesus, this is what he says. If you are the Son of God. What's the temptation? The temptation is to doubt his father's love for him. The temptation is to no longer believe that God is a God of love towards him. The temptation is to believe that he's not God's beloved son. The temptation is not to trust the promise that God has just given to him. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Because now circumstances are going awry. Things are difficult in his life. And and suddenly it's not so easy anymore. 
And the temptation that, that Satan throws out to him is this. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, I've been really hungry before. It was uh, one team Bible Academy where we went out. We were, we were helping to get all of the students packed up before this week-long backpacking trip. And as we're helping them get, get their stuff packed up, we get, we're focusing on getting their food bags packed. And Lee and I can't even remember exactly what happened, but somehow we didn't have food bags in our packs. I was like, it's okay. We'll grab some, we grabbed some dried fruit, some nuts. We had a friend who came and brought us a few odds and ends. We stuffed those into our backpack. We'll be fine. It's only seven days. Oh, man. If you've ever been out in the woods without enough food, that is the most miserable thing on earth. Maybe not the most miserable, but it's terrible. You get so hungry. I remember towards the end of that trip, we're just like looking with longing eyes at everything the, the, the kids are cooking because they all had hot meals and we're thinking, we're just salivating. And if they, they happen to not want one of their meals, we're like, aha, can we have that? We'll make that tonight. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll take your food for you. <laughs> we were so hungry. But I'll tell you, in that moment, there was no temptation in my mind like, ah, you see that rock over there? I'm going to make it into bread. It didn't even cross my mind. Satan didn't bring that temptation to me. You know why? I'm not God. <laughs> Jesus is. Jesus' temptation, though, is the same in character and nature to your temptation and my temptation in that this. You and I have the temptation to provide for ourselves. We don't have the supernatural capability of snapping our fingers and making rocks turn into bread. But we do have the temptation to think, well, you know what? I know that that God tells me that tithing is important. But I think I need to provide for myself. Or I know that I should really treat this person right, but if I beat them down a little bit, I'm going to get the better position. If I tell my boss a few things about this person, then it's going to help me out. Or it might take even less evil-seeming ways in which we just focus on providing for ourselves day in and day out to the extent that we forget about our beneficent, loving Savior who's provided absolutely everything for us. And we get so wrapped up in this world and trying to provide for ourselves and trying to get about doing our daily things that we forget Jesus. And we don't pick up the Bible anymore. We're not really worried about it anymore. And friends, sometimes that's why we have to be brought into a wilderness. Did you know, Jesus goes on and he says, look, it's written. How does he respond to Satan? He responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He points you and I to the foundation. What we need to rely on is the promises of God. We need to rely upon his written word. But that is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. If you have your Bible, go there really quick with me. Deuteronomy chapter 8, which again is talking about the children of Israel in in the wilderness. And it specifically talks about Moses says, this is, what, this is what happened to you. This is why you were led into the wilderness. We saw that it was because we're his precious treasure, because he wanted us to be his special people. But here you find another reason that, that, that kind of expands that. Verse 2 says this of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, 
and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. He goes on to say, your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell those 40 years. He led you out into the wilderness so that he could remind you that he's got you covered. That he loves you and he wants to provide for your needs. He led you out there so that you can know, hey, you have no idea where your food is going to come from. That's okay. God will send manna. Manna? What's that? What is it? That's actually what they called the stuff that was falling from heaven. Manna means basically what is it? They, did, they had no idea how God was going to provide. And you might have no idea how God is going to provide in your life, but what God is asking you to do is to trust who he is and that he will provide for you, that he will make a way forward for you, that he is the God who provides for his church in the wilderness, the God who nourishes his church in the wilderness. And that's what Jesus simply did. He trusted in the promises of his Father. And he wants to give you that same victory in your life. I know this because look back in Revelation chapter 12. Two verses before where we started. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 says this. This is how the church overcomes the dragon. This is how you can overcome Satan in your life. How many of you would love to be able to overcome just the the evil tendencies in your life? I would love it. I'd love to be an unselfish person. I'd love to, to only have unselfish love for the people around me. Well, this is the key. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11 says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. I don't think you caught that. Because you would be smiling, you'd be excited, you might even be jumping up and down right now if you really caught that. Alright, let's read it again. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. What does that have to do with you? Absolutely nothing. This has to do with the God of the universe who loved you and who laid down his life for you and they overcame by his sacrifice, not by their own. Is that good news or what? The reality is that we overcome by Jesus. By the fact that he is self-sacrificing love. And that he has revealed that to us on the cross. Because you remember on the cross, the same temptation was thrown at Jesus as he was nailed there. They said, well, if you are the son of God, save yourself. If God really loves you, then get yourself out of this predicament. And thank God that he didn't. You want to know what the remnant church looks like? The remainder of the true church? Look to Jesus on the cross who would not leave because he loved you more than he loved himself. But not only the blood of the Lamb, it goes on to say, and by the word of their testimony. They've come to experience the word for themselves and it's become such a living reality that that they know it for themselves and that they're able to stand on that foundation. And finally, out of the blood of the Lamb, out of the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives to the death. They were willing to die for their faith because they had come in contact with a love that was so incredibly great. Is that really possible? Is that something that we can really, truly experience? Well, I look back at the Waldensians' experience and I I watch as you read about their story. You read about how they were reading the gospel truths and they're looking down at the people who are living in the valleys and they're recognizing that these poor people, I mean, some of the wisest and best were 
leaving their families behind and going and going to monasteries. They're whipping themselves. They're bowing on hard concrete floors. They're doing whatever it takes in order to hopefully win God's approval in their life. <laughs> they're looking down with sadness saying, this isn't who God is. They're, they think they have to pray to this saint or that saint because that, maybe his righteousness will somehow make their prayer worthy and be able to be heard in heaven. They think that if they go on a long enough pilgrimage and they go to the place where Jesus was born, that, that maybe then God will accept them and they can't take it anymore. And you, they sent their children down to be missionaries, but they themselves also went to be missionaries. Some of them would go and they would, they would sell different items and as they're selling to people they would watch for somebody that's open somebody that wanted to hear God's word and they would begin to tell them the Bible and they'd read to them from the Bible they'd read to them about a God of love who wanted their happiness more than his own and I love how it records the reaction that took place in people's lives who received this word this is from the great controversy page 74 recording this history it says the assurance of a Savior's love seemed too much for some of these poor, tempest-tossed souls to realize. And maybe it seems like too much to you this morning. You're thinking, does God really love me? Yeah, he said that, that Jesus was his beloved son, but well, what about me? Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we were chosen in Christ to be adopted even before the foundation of this world. We were accepted in the beloved, Ephesians 1 verse 6 says. You know what that language is? That's the exact word that Jesus was told by the Father. You are beloved by heaven because of Jesus. So you can claim that same love in your life. The assurance of the Savior's love seemed too much for some of them, of these poor tempest-tossed souls to realize. So great was the relief which it brought. Such a flood of light was shed upon them that they seemed transported to heaven. Their hands were laid confidently in the hand of Christ. Their feet were planted upon the rock of ages. All fear of death was banished. They could now covet the prison and the faggot if they might thereby honor the name of their Redeemer. They're ready to die. They say, I would gladly die for this amazing God who has done so much for me. In secret places, the word of God was thus brought forth and read, and sometimes to a single soul, sometimes to a little company who were longing for light and truth. Often the entire night was spent in this manner. So great would be the wonder and admiration of the listeners that the messenger of mercy was not infrequently compelled to cease his reading until the understanding could grasp the tidings of salvation. Often would words like these be uttered, Will God indeed accept my offering? Will he smile upon me? Will he pardon me? The answer was read. Come unto me, all you that are labor, labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Faith grasped the promise, and the glad response was heard. No more long pilgrimages to make. No more painful journeys to holy shrines. I may come to Jesus, just as I am, sinful and unholy, and he will not spurn my prayer. Friends, Let's come to Jesus. Just as we are sinful and unholy, let's come to Him as revealed in the Bible and let's keep coming and keep coming. And this will bring darkness, light to the darkness of our world. The phrase of the Waldensians that, that became like their seal 
was light in the darkness. They actually had a seal that had a candlestick or, or a lampstand representing the light that came through the Word of God. Grab a hold of your Bible. Hang on to it because we're living in times where this is the only filter that can really give you the light that you're longing for in your life. And most of all, grab on to the Jesus as revealed, Jesus who's revealed in Scripture, who alone is your champion, who on the cross finally said, it is finished. And Paul goes on to write, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for giving us the victory in Jesus. And Lord, I don't know where each heart is at right now, but I know that your spirit is there knocking on the door of our hearts. Lord, maybe there's somebody here who isn't sure that they're really your beloved child. Would you reassure them right now that yes, you laid down your life for them. And that, yes, they are your beloved child. Would you remind them of that and keep reminding them of that? Father, maybe there's somebody else here this morning or this afternoon who just recognizes that they need to appreciate the value of your word more. That they want to dedicate more time to the Bible, take more time to talk to you in prayer. Father, I pray that you would draw them into a closer relationship with you and that you give them specific ideas and ways that they can dive into the Bible more fully than ever before and maybe even commit it to memory. And Father, I especially pray for those of us who may feel like we're good. We've got it together. Help us to recognize that we don't and that we desperately need a Savior. And may we run to the Word of God looking for that incredible Savior who alone can lead us through. Thank you for giving us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.